So we're returning again to the Epistle of Jude. Um, this is quickly becoming one of my favourite books to study. I know this is only the third one I've done, but this is a really fantastic book and I've really enjoyed the study. It's just so dense and wonderful. Um, that's really all I've got to say to start this off. We might as well just begin. So we're going to continue with our tradition of reading the entire book of Jude and then rereading the specific passage we will be reading or we will be studying today, which is Jude 14, 15 and 16. So here's the entire book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to who to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who revert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams to follow the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of eternal darkness, utter darkness, excuse me, has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him these are grumblers malcontents following their own desires they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage but you must remember beloved the predictions of the apostles of our lord jesus christ they said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his holy uh, glory with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, 
our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. Amen. So now, like I said, we're going to go and reread the three verses which we're doing today. That's Jude 14, 15, and 16, which says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. These are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So we'll start with verse 14. Here Jude references Enoch the seventh from Adam. Now we know that Enoch was in fact the seventh from Adam due to Genesis 5, 3 to 18 and Luke 3, 37 to 38, which I won't read here, but you can go off and read them uh, for yourself if you want. But this creates a problem. You see, different Bible verses seem to indicate that Enoch was not the seventh from Adam. 1 Corinthians 1, 3 uh, says that a man called Henoch which is just Enoch's name with a H in front of the E, was actually the seventh from Adam. So how do we resolve this, this magical mystery of the magical appearing H? How do we how do, we do this? Um, well, it's, it's actually kind of simple. Uh, the Hebrew word for Enoch and Henoch uh, are the same. I suppose I should be saying Henoch or Enoch. Anyway, um, it's the same Hebrew word, just translated differently. I believe the Hebrew word itself does actually have a, a H sound at the start. But if you go into Bible Hub and you look at like the, they have the Hebrew word and then the sort of translation or the, but basically the, um, the way you pronounce it using English characters and that begins with a H. So it does seem like the proper way to pronounce it does begin with a H, but the tra most translations just say Enoch and you'll not get into all of this. But anyway, because of this, um, you know, this this isn't a contradiction in the original Hebrew, it's just in the translations, and obviously we don't believe that the translations are divinely translated. Um, this is actually a contradiction that only exists in certain translations, because while translations like, say, for example, the King James, the King James has this error, the NIV doesn't. The NIV translates that part of First Corinthians um, as Enoch, as do I think most of them. Now, it's quite fun. This is, I think this... Not fun, but funny, I suppose. I think this points out a problem with a lot of the, um, what would you call them? I suppose the contradiction hunters. It really does put um, a problem with them because they're very lazy. They find contradictions where there aren't any. And it's, it's just ridiculous. For example, I got this off of the, uh, I believe it's called the Skeptics Annotated Bible. And one of the mistakes they made was that they referenced First Chronicles one, one to two. First Chronicles one one to two contains the names Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalaleel, which is a fun word to say. I know I said it wrong, but I don't care. And Jared. It does not contain Henoch or Enoch or whatever you want to say because that's in verse three. But the website only gives verses one to two. So when I went to corroborate this, I checked the. Hebrew of verse 2, assuming it would be there, it wasn't. So I went to check the Hebrew of verse 1, it wasn't there either. So I thought, oh, these guys are Egypts. So I went and I checked verse 3 and there it was. Um, at least that's in the original Hebrew. But 
<laughs> so Stan's just like, there is an awful lot of just pure laziness that goes into these. I remember back when I used to do the Bible contradiction series, uh, where I, I, I point out how Bible contradictions weren't actually contradictions. There were so many frustrating ones. There was a big chart of like 439 of them, I think the number was. Um, and 7 and 9 were the exact same. There were repeat, I remember. And there was multiple repeats throughout it. So it was probably closer to like 430 than 439 um, when you take away all the repeats. Uh, there were also ones of incorrect verses. I can't remember which one it was, but one of the entries on that cited a verse that didn't exist. Like it cited verse 20 on a 16 verse chapter or something. And so it became my job and the job of other people who researched this to go and look for the verse that they were actually trying to point to. So I had to find out what verse they, like I had to find the verse, the contradictory verse for them in order to disprove it, which is just ridiculous. And if you go back and watch that series, I think the first episode of that series, um, the way we resolved, or the way I resolved the contradiction was by reading the verse after one of the verses. So they'd quote two verses and say, verse one says this, but verse two says the opposite. So I went to verse two and I read the verse after verse two and it cleared it all up. But they wouldn't know that because they didn't bother doing proper research. They just Googled contradictory Bible verses and like, well, we will throw this in there. And that's, you know, that's all they did. That's all these people do. They don't actually research it. They just go into um, Google and they go, contradictory Bible verses, evil Bible verses, Bible verses that are wrong or whatever it is, anti-scientific Bible verses, whatever it is. They don't look into it. They don't research it. They don't possibly probably even read the verses. They might not, they might read the verses. They might not even read the thing like, if they're going from 1 Corinthians 2, they won't read either the passage or they won't even read that as first corinthians 2 they won't verify it they'll just copy paste copy paste copy paste no more complete laziness and so of course it has a lot of errors there's a lot of mistakes um because they, they don't try they're too arrogant to try a lot of the time because you know how these people and this isn't all atheists of course but a lot of these people the contradiction hunters the anti uh, the anti-theists the radical atheists are very arrogant a lot of the time. You know, you know for well they are. Even if you're an atheist, you have to admit a lot of them are very arrogant and they're so full of themselves that they don't think they actually have to push in any work. And so they don't push in any work, but they're not even a quarter as good as they think they are. So it ends up terrible. And that's sort of what you have here. And I think I'll use one more example from when I was doing the whole bio contradictions debunked thing. Uh, one of the bio contradictions I was able to. Um, resolve by reading one of the verses they had cited. So if you read like like say like I said, they gave two verses, verse one and verse two. If you read all of verse one and the first half of verse two, it would seem like a contradiction. But if you read the second half of verse two, it cleared it up. I think that was what happened anyway. Um, it, it was something along those lines. I can't remember. It was so long ago now few months at least which i guess isn't that long but feels like a long time ago and a lot of this stuff as well as what happens here i think with just the king james being a bit silly <laughs> and then that's really all it was things that are like a lot of those like i think the um the church used exclusively the king james because pretty much every like all, like half of them half of the contradictions could be summarized as this is just an error in the king james translation not in the bible itself at other translations like the ESV, the NIV, the NASB, 
it wouldn't have them. So they couldn't use that because it didn't fit their nonsense narrative. Anyway, I think I think that I, I don't need to go into big old rant there, but I, I really think that stuff like this is good to point out and show. The people we're up against are very lazy. We've got verses in the Bible like, I walk, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? I fear no evil for God is with me. And that's good when you're actually up against something scary. But when you're up against people like this, you don't need stuff like that. You just need basic common sense and that'll do the job. But it's always nice to have God on your side anyway, you know? Anyway, we'll move on. And with that out of the way, um, we have to ask the question now of whether or not Enoch actually said what Jude is claiming he said. Well, we know nothing about Enoch and we have no quotes from him. There's only a few verses that even mention him and I think the majority of those are genealogies. Now, it might seem like Jude is providing a quote from him, but I don't actually think it is. Now, that's not because Jude is wrong. That's not because the Holy Spirit didn't inspire this or the Holy Spirit did inspire it and it was wrong. I think this verse is completely factually correct. I just don't think that it's attempting to give a direct quote from the real person of Enoch. I think that's similarly to verse 9. Here Jude's quoting a non-canonical book. Specifically, he's quoting First Enoch. This quote can be found in First Enoch. First Enoch is not inspired scripture. It should not be treated as inspired scripture. But that isn't what Jude is doing here. He's not trying to treat it as inspired scripture. When he talks about Enoch, he's referring to Enoch of first Enoch, not the Enoch of real life. Jude does say that he's talking about the Enoch who is the seventh from Adam, which is the old con contradiction thing we mentioned a minute ago. But that's not who Enoch of, or sorry, that is who Enoch of first Enoch is supposed to be, so it doesn't really matter. It's sort of like... um. Uh, one of my favourite books that, uh, it's even though it's, I've never read it, it's one of my favourites just from the premise, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, which about as historically reliable as First Enoch, or The Assumption of Moses, or anything that isn't in the Bible that modern day TikTok wants to tell you should be in the Bible, all the Gnostic texts, like the Gospel of Judas and all that crap. Trust me, this is probably more accurate to history than that stuff is. So Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, by Seth Graham, it's, it's just his name, Seth Graham Smith, but for some reason Graham has an E at the end, anyway. Um, so Seth Smith wrote this book, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Now if I were to refer to the main character of this book and say, oh, Abraham Lincoln goes around saying vampires, which is... <laughs> It's mad that we got from a Bible study to hear, but anyway, if I were to say, oh yeah, Abraham Lincoln goes around saying vampire hunters, I'm being completely serious, completely genuine, I'm not lying, I'm not incorrect, because that's what happens in the book, which is what I'm referring to. And I'm using the word Abraham Lincoln to refer to the historical um, person Abraham Lincoln as portrayed in this book. I am not using that word to refer to the same Abraham Lincoln but the one who existed in real life, if you get me. Because this, is meant to, this isn't someone who happens to share the name. This is the Abraham Lincoln, the president of America, who got shot. That this, this, this is the same Abraham Lincoln, except this one fights vampires. So if I were to refer to him as Abraham Lincoln, I'd be correct. But anything I'd say about him, I'd be saying about the book character, not the real life person. 
In the same way, uh, I believe Jude is referring to first. Or to, to, sorry, excuse me. I believe Jude is referring to Enoch the seventh from Adam from first Enoch, rather than Enoch the seventh from Adam from real life. So I hope that um, illustration makes sense. Anyway, I don't think. Jude is attempting to portray either First Enoch or the quote he gets from First Enoch as a legitimate historical or inspired source. Similarly, like I said to how he used the assumption of Moses in verse 9, I think he's just using popular fiction from the time to give a very real message. This is, you know, he, he does this a few times. It's not out of character for him. So uh, just how the assumption of Moses wasn't truly inspired, truly historical, just like the fight between the devil and Michael was not um, historical narrative. This here is not historical narrative. Enoch almost certainly didn't say it. But the message behind this, because this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the message behind this is very real. So what is that message? Well, this verse that we're studying right now doesn't tell us, but the next verse does. However, even though this verse doesn't tell us, it does give us a sort of a build-up into what's about to come, the crescendo that's in the next verse, if you will. It tells us that whatever is coming is going to involve a lot of angels. Tens of thousands of angels. So now we'll move on to verse 15. Here we see what Jude was building up to in the last verse. He was building up to the fact that ungodly people are going to be judged for all the things they have done in an, in an ungodly way or in a sinful way. And I like the way the King James translates this, so this is Jude 15, the King James Version. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all that are ungodly among all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. God is coming to execute divine judgment on all ungodly sinners for all the things they have ungodly done, as the King James puts it. And I really like that language, that they have ungodly done. I don't know, there's something about it that I like. Anyway, God's wrath isn't a popular topic today. Uh, and I think this is a shame for two main, it's a shame for a lot of reasons, but two main reasons. Firstly, because it fails to highlight one of the perfect aspects of our perfect God. Secondly, it's because it fails to highlight another perfect aspect of our perfect God. It fails firstly to highlight God's wrath when he punishes sinners, but this lack of focus on the wrath of God also means that the effect of his merciful love and kindness is severely dampened. If we go to the book of Acts, we can see an example of God's wrath perfectly. The book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. I don't know how to pronounce his name, I'm sorry. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear, fear came upon all 
threw her rubbish. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is a wonderful passage of scripture. At the same time, it is terrifying. The context is that the apostles needed money to survive and so what would happen is a lot of the local people very charitably who had just been saved recently sold a bunch of their stuff and gave their money to the apostles now that's not a prosperity message any prosperity people listening don't get any ideas but these people in the crowd they're in the crowd and in the local community went about selling their stuff now ananias and his wife with the name I can't pronounce did overall if you remove the lie a good thing they had no obligation to sell their house and if they wanted to they had no obligation or sell not their house but sell their stuff and if they wanted to they had no obligation to give so much as a cent to the apostles but they did promise that they would sell their stuff and give all the money to the apostles the sin is not that they didn't do enough they did something which is more than they had to the sin is that they said they'd give a certain amount and they didn't they promised the whole amount and they only gave part of it now the pro the, the apostles still profited from this it was still a net positive from them but that doesn't matter because the lie in this situation was still a sin and you might think oh it's only a small sin they still did an overall good thing that's not how righteousness works that's not how god's judgment works Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The verses don't tell us, but they do imply it. They don't outright spoon feed it to us, but they do imply it. This was a divine execution. God struck these people dead on the spot. So when we don't talk about God's wrath, this is a perfect part of God that we just don't address. But it also dampens his mercy. When you, when we look at things, you know, there's a story I heard about a church that would get glitter and push it into the ventilation system. And when the glitter came through, they'd say it was Holy Spirit gold. So the, 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 this wasn't a case of people genuinely believing their own hype. Of course, the crowd believed it, but the pastors, the elders, so on, they knew it was all nonsense. But they tried to pass that off. And to my knowledge, nothing much has happened to them. God has been merciful to them. Ananias and his wife lied to the face directly of one person, perhaps to a small group. And to the Holy Spirit. And they were killed instantly for it. These preachers lie to the face of 
large groups just in front of them, plus anyone who's listening or watching online, plus anyone who'll find their stuff later. And they're telling these lies about the Holy Spirit of God. And God shows mercy on them to allow them to live. That doesn't seem merciful if you remove the wrath of God, if you remove verses like this, if you pretend that's not part of who he is. But when you remember that we are dealing with this God, when we are dealing with the God who in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, struck Aaron's sons dead because they used the wrong fire in worship. When we remember the God we serve, and we sin against him and he lets us live and he doesn't kill us on the spot, we remember how merciful he is. When we sin, part of our response to our own sin should of course be the feeling of guilt and remembering we are a horrible sinner. But of course, that should ultimately lead to the realisation, I am a horrible sinner and I have not yet been killed. God must be gracious and good and merciful and loving. But you remove the wrath of God and that is meaningless. You remove the wrath of God and you sin and nothing happens to you and you think, but of course, what would happen to me? not like I serve a God who has any sort of wrath or anger towards sin but when you serve the one true God and you know who he is then every second of your life every breath you are allowed every moment every instant you go through from the moment you first sin onwards you must realize the active mercy of God in that moment but you can only realize that if you understand his wrath and his justice. But if you forget his wrath, you forget even his justice, as some people today do. That's meaningless. Because God owes you that. Because you are your own God, you are the center of your own little universe. When you remove the wrath of God, you're left with a loving God, a kind God. A God who loves you. There's no reason for that God to punish you. And all those things are true of the living God, of the true God. They're all true. But they're only part of the truth. In the same way, if you remove those aspects, you're left with a God who is wrathful and just and punishes sin. That's not the God we serve. Not fully. Because while the God we serve does do those things, he's not only those things. Because he's also merciful and slow to anger and kind and loving. To remove all of the bad aspects, I say the bad aspects, they're all perfect. To remove all of the aspects that we don't happen to like about God leaves us with something that is as close to God as if we were to remove all of the aspects that we do like. The only difference is, then the second option, we've removed all the aspects that we do like. So there's nothing left for us to like in this God. But for those of us who love the true God, it doesn't matter, because we love all of his attributes. At the very least, we recognize his attributes, recognize their perfection, and we recognize how they play off each other. When you remove the wrath of God, you slice the mercy of God in half. God is love.
that's true. But he is also perfect and also just. That means that he perfectly loves perfect justice and judgment. Perfect judgment includes condemnation. God is not some cosmic Santa Claus threatening the naughty kids with cold but always delivering presents anyway. He is the living God. He is the thrice holy God. He is the God that we will all stand before someday. And he is a God who executes judgment on those who are not his people. He is a God who convicts the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds that they have committed in such ungodly ways. And that includes harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That includes blasphemy. That includes taking his name in vain. Our words matter, especially when the word of God and the name of God is on our tongues. Now we go to verse 16. Here we see that the kinds of people um, that false teachers tend to be are described for us. And so what are those kinds of, what are those people like? Well, they complain a lot. They aren't content with anything. They boast. They follow their own sinful passions. They show favoritism to gain advantage. How many false teachers can you think of that match that description? Almost to a T. I can think of a few. Obviously, they are all more worried about their own will than following God's word. That's no matter what branch of false Christianity or false belief you go to. That's common in all of them. But I think this verse can really be applied to the prosperity preacher. They complain when God doesn't give them everything their heart desires. They feel they are owed by God. Because remember, they have a God who, yes, is all loving, yes, is just, yes, is kind, but he's not wrathful. He's not someone who punishes sin. He's just a God of giving. That's where you end up when you remove half the attributes of God. And you end up with people who have so much. And despite the fact that they have so much, it still isn't enough. They want more, more money, more planes, more cars. How many is Kenneth Copeland on now? Five? Jesse Duplantis has two, I think. Or he was thinking of getting the second one at some stage. I remember that was a big controversy. Because he wanted to get a private jet. And his explanation was that the one he already had wasn't good enough or something like that. And they boast about everything that they claim God has given them. Again, we only know about Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis. Uh, Plantus' planes, not because someone exposed them, they freely spoke about it. They presented it to people. Look how God has blessed me. Look how great I am. Look how rich I am. Haven't I brilliant? Isn't God brilliant to me? They boast about these things. We don't have to coax these details out of them. They're proud of it. They're happy to share these things. They boast about everything that they claim God has given them. And they make themselves out to be God's favourite, God's anointed, so that people won't be able to question them. These are not the marks of true men of God. 
you see these signs in a teacher, it's probably a safe bet that they are a false teacher. So now we move to the application. And we see what, well, what can we get from this text? Well, first we see the reverence we must have for God. We must remember who he is. He is holy, holy, holy. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He's not some fella. He's not your pal. He's your sovereign king. You must worship him as such. And we also get a pretty good guide for spotting false teachers. We see their characteristics and their traits. Now, this doesn't mean that if any one of our brothers or sisters are struggling with any of these uh, sins, that we cast them out as false teachers. But if there is a man leading a church who fits either all or most of these things that are described here, the way that so many modern preachers unfortunately do, then that church has a big problem and it needs to be dealt with. We don't go hunting for these people, but when we find them, we deal with them. We don't make people out to be this way, but when they are this way, we call them out on it. God's fine with judging them. Now, there's certain things we can't do. We can't be judgmental. We can't pretend that someone's this way when they're not. But when they are, we call them out. How many times did Paul call people out by name? Call churches out by name? The Holy Spirit calling these people out by name, saying, this person's a false teacher. This church teaches falsely and does so many horrible things. We can't be afraid of this. We can't be afraid to do what's right. I don't know who's listening to this, but I do know that you're a sinner. You might wonder, how, how could I say something like that? You don't know me. How, how, how could you say that, 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 that I'm a sinner? Well, because the Bible says you are. In Romans and Second King, First Kings, excuse me, in Psalms, plenty of places it says all have sinned. That's me. That's you. It's your cousins, your brothers, your sisters, your neighbor, everyone you know, everyone you don't know, everyone who has ever lived is currently alive or will ever live, with one exception, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And He died on the cross, lived the perfect life, and died the perfect death, so that people like you and me, wretched sinners could escape the judgment of the thrice holy God. Could escape the judgment that so many people are happily marching towards. And that we might live forever with him in paradise. That we might be forgiven of our sins, free of our sins, that the blood of Christ might wash them away. He makes that offer to all of us. To all of his people, I mean. For once you are called, there is no turning back. All whom God calls will come to him. But only those he calls can come. Are you called by God? I hope so. It's my prayer that you are. And know this. If you want to see God but you're worried that you're not one of the called. God's not hiding behind some tree. He's not hiding behind the couch. Hoping that you don't find him. He who knocks, it shall be opened for. He who searches shall find. If you want to look for God, it's a sign he's already begun work in your life. So what do you do from here? You repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't save yourself. Even if you repent, you're not saving yourself. 
It's just a sign that God has begun a work in you and he's already decided to save you because God and God alone saves. We don't save. We don't save ourselves. We don't save anyone else. God saves us so that no one can boast. God saves us. I hope you're saved and I hope I'll see you in heaven.